Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The clock read 5.15 that Friday afternoon. And the light was fading over the small village of Brembate de Sopra in Lombardy. 13-year-old Yara Gambreasio was restless, as 13-year-old girls tend to be, unable to keep her body still. It was just a week until her rhythmic gymnastics show and she was incredibly excited, her muscles unconsciously going through the motions in preparation. At regular intervals, an arm would suddenly extend, fingertips pointed gracefully, and she'd drop into the splits spontaneously. She needed to get out of the house. Her stereo sat in the corner on a side table. She'd been meaning to drop it to her gymnastics instructor for a while now, and with a burst of direction she picked it up and called to her family that she was leaving the house. The gym, where arguably she spent as much time as her own home, was only a few hundred metres down the road. She'd be back soon, in plenty of time for dinner. As Yara walked down the street, where the cooler air of the evening was closing in, she felt the weight of the stereo on her shoulder and ran her tongue over her train track braces. She was fizzing with energy as she arrived at the gym and pulled open the door she knew so well. It was the last time that would ever happen. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, and the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice and my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused have gone free. 
Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, Series 2, Episode 11, The Postage Stamp. It's November 2010, a particularly beautiful time of year in this part of Italy. Just an hour north of Milan and south of the Bergamo Alps, the picturesque village of Brembate de Sopra has a population of just 8,000. Just 12 kilometres away, less than half an hour's drive, 45-year-old Letizia Rugeri is staring out of the window of Bergamo's public prosecutor's office. Leticia has been a magistrate for 15 years and was a policewoman before that. She's had a varied career dedicated to law enforcement and bringing people to justice. She's looking towards the mountains in the distance when her phone rings. It's just gone 7pm. The voice on the other end of the line was taut, a frequency Leticia recognised immediately as fear. Fulvio Gambriasio was reporting his 13-year-old daughter, Yara, missing. Yara had gone to the gym earlier and hadn't come home. Yara's phone, when called, had gone straight to voicemail. This was not like the conscientious Yara. It was entirely out of character. Leticia didn't hesitate to react. Within minutes, she had dispatched state police officers and carabinieri, Italy's military police, to Brembate de Sopra. Officers lined the streets, a completely incongruous sight in this humble village where tourists were usually the only thing out of place. Locals and neighbours stood outside their doors, talking in hushed whispers. Word on the street mirrored much of what police had managed to glean so far. Yara's gym instructor had confirmed to police that she had seen the budding gymnast earlier that day and that they had done a little training. Yara had begged her for a bit of extra tuition time, saying she wanted to be perfect for the impending competition, and her instructor hadn't the heart to say no. A while later, after she'd finished her gymnastics, Yara had sent a message to one of her friends, a girl called Martina. The text was about the logistics of competition the following Sunday, how they'd get there and at what time. That had been sent at 6.44pm and was the last known text Yara sent. Then there were rumours which began to swirl and which officers picked up immediately. Two unknown men had apparently been seen loitering around the gym. They'd arrived in a red car and some people suggested they were seen talking to Yara. But there was no more specificity than that, nothing to verify it as being any more than reactive gossip. This part of the region of Italy was incredibly superstitious. Omens and wider forces at play were ingrained into the fabric of the culture. Rain could foretell a failed marriage. Strangers were not to be trusted. 
so something as unsettling as this had everyone on edge. And this kind of case was rare in Brembate de Sopra, to say the least. The pressure to find Yara, and quickly, was intense, and the locals scrutinised every police reaction intently. Letitia, having received the initial call, had carried on to head up the operation. She'd called in sniffer dogs who were set to work to try and track the team. The hope was that the dogs would be able to illuminate Yara's movements after the ones already known to officers. The eager hounds started their work at the gymnasium complex where Yara was thought to have left to start her walk home. But, with their noses to the ground, rather than turning in the direction of Yara's house, they fixated on a trail in the opposite direction. Officers followed as they zigzagged their way down roads and streets towards a small cluster of houses named Mapello. Later, phone pings, the electronic signals which connect mobile phones to masts at regular intervals, revealed that Yara's phone had indeed been in the vicinity of Mapello at some point between half past six and seven pm that evening. The normally quiet and contained Gambriasio household was besieged with detectives. With a case that was quickly escalating in urgency, as well as notoriety, no one was off limits. Where had each member of the family been when Yara went missing? Was there any reason Yara might have run away? Any argument brewing? Despite being an incredibly private family, Yara's father, Fulvio, a local architect, as well as her mother, Mora, a teacher, gave themselves over to questioning. As did Yara's siblings, Kiba, two years older than Yara at 15, and Natan and Giole, both under 10. The children were clearly shaken with the turmoil unfolding around them. Turmoil which showed no signs of abating. Each child told police they were at home when Yara went missing. They'd heard her shout to say she was leaving. They had nothing else to share that they believed could be helpful and they had no idea where Yara might be. Leticia cross-referenced, as all experienced detectives know to do. Relatives and friends were all questioned about the Gambriasio family. Was everything really as normal and harmonious as officers were being led to believe? It certainly seemed that way. To be sure, Leticia had her team wiretap the household phone. Would any of the family unwittingly give away any sign they knew something more than they were telling the police? Officers listened intently to hours of calls, with nothing notable to report. So Leticia was reassured that the Gambriasios were just as they presented, a family in despair, desperate to find their missing second child. Photos of Yara were everywhere, on the local news, in the papers, pasted on lampposts. Vibrant, youthful and full of life, Yara seemed almost ever-present, despite her absence. Everyone had a sense that they knew her, and everyone desperately wanted a happy outcome to this story. She wants more wiretaps. 
said one junior officer to his colleague. More, came the incredulous reply. Wiretapping became a key feature of this investigation as it unfolded over the next few months. And it wasn't just restricted to the homes of Yara's family, relatives and friends. No, Leticia had more ambitious plans. In fact, officers surreptitiously listened into the calls of hundreds of phones in the Lombardy area. Records of almost 15,000 handsets believed to have been in the vicinity of Yara's location when she disappeared were traced. And this widely cast net initially proffered some promising leads. When an interpreter heard the phrase, Forgive me God, I didn't kill her, during one intercepted phone call, he nearly choked on his lukewarm coffee. He immediately rose from his chair and signalled to his supervising officer, Listen to this, he said. The man whose conversation was being intercepted was a Moroccan-born builder called Mohamed Fikri, and it was quickly discovered he had been working in a builder's yard in Mapello on the day of Yara's disappearance. Could this be the man police were searching for? The key to unlocking where Yara was and what had happened to her? When officers discovered Fikri's van with a bloodstained mattress in the back, they certainly thought so. But Fikri was no longer in the area. He was on a boat bound for Tangiers. Warrants were granted and Interpol was notified, but when a confused Mohammed Fikri was eventually found, it quickly became clear he was not a master criminal or kidnapper. The mattress in his van was a red herring, the blood wasn't Yara's, and the interpreter on duty that day had mistranslated what the builder had said an error caused simply by the nuance of language and meaning. The person or persons who knew what had happened to Yara was still at large, and Leticia was determined to find them. But that determination was to be stretched to its limits, as weeks turned into months and months turned into years, with no more clues and no signs of Yara. The 26th of February 2011 marked three months since Yara had last been seen and her whereabouts were still at the forefront of local consciousness. In fact, plane enthusiast Ilario Scotti was thinking about it as he flew his radio-controlled model aeroplane over Scrubland, south of Bremba de Sopra. This toy was new and Ilario wanted to try it out somewhere with plenty of space but he couldn't get the hang of the controls. The plane wasn't operating as he'd like, and he decided to bring it back down to earth, landing it in a particularly coarse patch of grass. He picked his way towards it. The model plane had landed next to what looked like some rags or old clothes, which he tried to step over. But then Ilario spotted a shoe. Two shoes and a sick feeling rose in his stomach. It was the call Leticia had been waiting for for months. A body had been discovered, and officers were already at the scene. She raced to join them. 
while forensic officers worked to secure the area and collect the evidence which was still being gathered from the undergrowth, every officer knew instinctively what had been found. A battery for an LG phone, the same make as Yara's, was bagged up, as was a dirty-looking black bomber jacket, something she'd been reported as wearing as she'd skipped off to the gym with the stereo on her shoulder. The body, found in a state of severe decomposition, was painstakingly transported to the mortuary. And such was the public interest in this case, and the impending reaction to the body's discovery, that Leticia knew she had to react accordingly. She decided to call in expertise of the highest order, in the form of Italy's most famous forensic pathologist, Professor Cristina Cataneo. In the cool calm of the room where the post-mortem was being conducted, there was complete silence. The professor walked around the table, regularly leaning in. There was nothing more tragic than seeing the body of a child. It made her laser-focused. Over the next few hours, Christina discovered traces of lime in Yara's respiratory passages, as well as the presence of jute, a vegetable fibre used to make rope, on Yara's clothing. Mercifully, evidence didn't suggest that Yara had been raped, although her purple bra was unhooked. She had, however, suffered multiple injuries from a sharp weapon which had pierced her clothing and her skin in various places. Professor Cataneo determined that Yara had been attacked and abandoned while she was still alive. Heartbreakingly, the most likely cause of death was exposure, essentially resulting from prolonged periods in extreme temperatures or environmental conditions. Not only in Yara's hometown or across the region of Bergamo, but the entire country mourned her death. The senseless murder of a young and vital girl, it could not would not be tolerated. Never had there been such pressure for the authorities to solve a case. So, alongside the post-mortem, forensic officers worked methodically on each item recovered from the shrubland where the model plane had landed that day. Every effort trained on deciphering what insights, what clues they might offer up. Amongst all the items recovered, three had traces of DNA. And when tested, they did reveal a DNA profile, but it did not belong to Yara. The samples obtained from Yara's gloves and her phone battery, as well as the spot of blood found on an item of her clothing, didn't match any DNA profile being held by the national database. Though analysts were certain they belonged to a male, and as such, Officers had a silhouette of an offender, who they named Unknown One. Now, they just needed to find him. With the same ambition as the wiretapping, widespread DNA testing now took place across the region. Friends, family, gym attendees, instructors, as well as every person whose phone had been traced to the vicinity of Yara's disappearance were all called in to provide a DNA sample for cross-referencing. It was a huge endeavour, and an expensive one. 
Each DNA sample obtained was sent to a laboratory in Rome and took a number of hours to process before being compared against the DNA that had been found on Yara's belongings. So, against the wider backdrop of Yara's funeral, which news channels televised across Italy, thousands upon thousands of DNA samples were being rapidly analysed. The connection between a grieving family and the dogged work of forensic investigators to bring them closure wasn't lost on Letitia. The two were inextricably interconnected, both dependent on the other. But despite the extensive work of forensic officers and the huge number of DNA samples obtained, not one of them proved to be a match. Letitia sat at her desk. It was late, She seemed to stay late most nights these days. She needed to go home to her children, though they were the precise reason she was still at the office. She needed to crack this case. For them. For herself. For Yara's family. She rubbed the heels of her hands into her eyes and started to think about the location where Yara's body had been discovered. She thought about the possibility that the area was perhaps known to the perpetrator rather than just being a random dump site. She knew that the area was near to a notorious nightclub called Quicksand. Officers were regularly called there to attend violent assaults and altercations. A murder had even taken place there earlier that year. Was it feasible that Yara's killer was a frequenter of this club? It was certainly worth exploring. The next day, with the club's cooperation, the guest list records were handed over to the police and officers began door-to-door inquiries of clubgoers, arriving at the addresses of regular quicksand frequenters and requesting they provide a DNA sample. The majority complied, and lo and behold, a new lead emerged. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. 
We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you're enjoying Smoking Gun, sign up to our brand new subscription site called What's the Story Crime? You can listen to every episode of the new series of Smoking Gun right now. You'll also get access to a whole collection of award-winning true crime content, including shows like The Missing and Crosshairs, all made by the makers of Smoking Gun and all of them ad-free. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Your support allows us to keep making more of the podcasts you love. The lab held the analysis reports side by side. One showed the profile of a quicksand nightclub regular. The other showed the profile of Yara's killer. They were strikingly similar. But there was one problem. The sample provider, a man called Demiano Guerinoni, had a cast-iron alibi. In fact, he hadn't even been in the country on the day of Yara's disappearance. He'd been in South America. But the similarity in the DNA profile was undeniable and couldn't be ignored. Leticia and her team began to look at the Guerinoni family. And a startling fact came to light. Damiano Guerinoni's mother, Aurora Zani, was well known to the Gambriasios. Not only did Aurora live close to their home, she'd been in their home. Aurora had worked as a maid and cleaner in the Gambriasio's house when Yara was little. This surely couldn't be a coincidence. But Aurora, when questioned, forcefully asserted that it could be nothing else. She loved the Gambriasio's. She had a huge fondness for Yara, whom she had watched grow. She was heartbroken by everything that was happening, she said. True to type, Leticia ordered a wiretap on Aurora's phone. Over the next few weeks, every syllable which came out of Aurora's mouth during a phone call was monitored. But absolutely nothing incriminating was mentioned. If anything, Aurora was consumed by her grief for Yara's family and dismay at being in any way placed in the frame. By now, a year had passed since Yara was reported missing, and nine months since her body was discovered. The praise bestowed upon the initial investigation was not only waning, but souring. Why had Leticia's team not found Yara's killer yet, the public wanted to know. Why weren't they further forward? And Leticia found herself the target of personal attacks. She was called incompetent, lazy and inept for not arresting Mohammed Fikri, who some people were struggling to accept was not the culprit. Leticia's response was to double down on her efforts. She would solve this case. And her pinpoint focus on the only lead still open was taking up all of her attention. By now, 
The Guerinoni family tree had been researched and dated all the way back to the 19th century. It turned out that the Guerinones hailed from a small hillside village called Gorno, an hour or so north of Bergamo. Some family members lived there still, or had until recently. So Leticia dispatched officers to the village to meet the people whose DNA held such similarities with Yara's killer, to quiet her mind about any possible links. Damiano Guerinone's father had a brother, Giuseppe, Damiano's uncle. But Uncle Giuseppe had died in 1999. So it was his widow who answered the door to police officers in September 2011. The widow welcomed the officers inside. She answered their questions. And she allowed them to look through the possessions of her late husband. In and amongst the artefacts and treasures of his life that she had kept, police made an unusual discovery. Listeners of this podcast will know that this is the smoking gun moment officers had been waiting for. And it came in the form of two postage stamps. Two stamps which Giuseppe, a man dead for a decade, had once licked. They were sent to the lab and the results brought everything more sharply into focus. Geneticists were convinced that Giuseppe Guerinoni, based on his unique DNA, was the father of Yara's killer. Now, Giuseppe Guerinoni had three children, a girl and two boys. And based on the Y chromosome of the sample, Leticia's officers concentrated on the boys, Giuseppe's sons, Pierpaolo and Diego. Pierpaolo was a Jehovah's Witness. Diego had a drug problem. Samples were taken from both men, and Leticia held her breath. But incredibly, neither provided a perfect match with Yara's killer's DNA. The frustration was unbearable. What did it mean? How come the answers seemed so close, but still so elusive? The only reasonable explanation was that Giuseppe had fathered an illegitimate child outside of his marriage, and that that child, whose DNA matched Giuseppe so closely, belonged to the person who killed Yara Gambriasio. The investigation, to outsiders at least, had a sudden change of tack. It was now women, older women in fact, who were being asked to provide DNA samples. But why? Well, Letitia had a hunch that if she could work backwards, if she could find the woman who had had an affair with the late Giuseppe, she would in turn find their progeny. But with suspicions in the town of Gorno growing and the locals becoming increasingly resistant to outside intrusion, this was no easy feat. Pious, Catholic, traditional villages such as Gorno didn't want these stones overturned or their dirty laundry exposed. Historic infidelity exposed by DNA tests was, unsurprisingly, not welcomed. Though leaks did make their way to the officers' ears, as locals clandestinely spoke of memories of affairs and betrayals long since past, and forensic technique gave way to good, old-fashioned, human-focused policing. 
Leticia sought out women from across the region and beyond it. Anyone who could feasibly have crossed paths with Giuseppe back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Women who'd frequented the same places as him, the same towns at the same time. Women who'd travelled his bus route. He drove a public bus at the time. Friends of neighbours who once visited, single mothers, any woman with any link, however tenuous, to Gorno or Giuseppe. And, of course, women who were still married and would have been at the time of meeting him. After all, infidelity works both ways. Of course, rumours bubbled to the surface. A signature of this entire case and something which Leticia's team knew they couldn't overlook. Old colleagues from decades previously were found and questioned and plenty recalled Giuseppe as being a womaniser, adding weight to the team's theory and methods. Finally, in June 2014, someone uttered a name which would change the course of the entire investigation. Esther Azufi. Towards the end of the 1960s, Esther, who was then 19, had been a neighbour of Giuseppe and his family. Esther was newly married, though the marriage was already on the rocks. Her husband was a depressive type, old before his years, the total opposite of the vivacious, progressive Esther, who worked at a textile factory in a neighbouring village. Every day, she travelled to the factory by bus a bus that for a certain period of time at least was driven by Giuseppe Guerinoni. Could this vibrant young woman in an unhappy marriage have fallen for the bus driver's charms, as remembered by those who knew him? Could she have fallen pregnant to him and given birth to a baby boy who would one day turn out to be a killer? Was Esther the mother of of Suspect Unknown Number 1. Esther Artsufi, now in her 70s, was questioned extensively, but refused to admit that she had had an affair with the enigmatic Giuseppe. Though she did speak about her two children, twins, one boy and one girl. This was it. This was the golden ticket detectives had been waiting for. That was until they checked the database. Records show that Esther had been DNA tested previously, but no match had been recorded. She had not presented as the biological mother of Yara's killer. How could that be? Surely this could not be yet another coincidence. The deflation of every single officer on the case was palpable. In a case with so many twists and turns, another one was just too much to bear. Undeterred, disbelieving and as determined as ever, Leticia instructed them to be checked again. And like a plot twist from a thriller, it soon became clear that between the handling of samples between the Bergamo officers and the Rome laboratory, a grave error had been made. Instead of comparing Esther's DNA to the unknown sample found on Yara's clothing, analysts compared Esther's DNA to Yara's own profile. So of course it had presented as not being a match. Retesting the DNA was now priority number one, and officers oversaw every second of the process. 
This investigation had been rumbling on for four years. The time for mistakes was long since past. This time, under the unrelenting gaze of numerous analysts, the results pushed their way from the printer. It was a match. Esther's son was suspect number one. And now he had a face and a name. Massimo Bozzetti. Massimo Bozzetti was 42 years old. He liked nightclubs and drinking. He was short and regularly sported a bleached goatee beard. He was married and had three children. What's more, he lived in Mapello, the place from which Yara's mobile phone last pinged. Leticia moved fast. On the 15th of June 2014, she set up a fake roadblock in Mapello, breathalyzing people who drove past. She knew Massimo was due to take this route, and sure enough, within the hour she was able to flag his car down under the pretense of it being a random check. He stood next to his car and complied with being breathalyzed. He was breathalyzed twice, in fact, the officer apologetically explaining the first sample hadn't worked properly. In reality, they just wanted to make sure that a usable DNA sample had been obtained. Yet again, the race was on to get this sample analysed. To conclude the journey started by two decade-old postage stamps. The result? An exact match. Massimo Bozzetti was, categorically and unequivocally, Yara's killer. So, on the 16th of June 2014, almost four years after Yara's disappearance, Bozzetti was arrested and charged with murder. The news rippled around the country, around the world even, and was greeted with jubilation and relief. Consumers of the news avidly absorbed every detail which emerged after Massimo's arrest. Tech analysts discovered Massimo had a penchant for disturbing Google searches about young girls. And according to one of the most comprehensive articles about the case in British newspaper The Guardian, Bozzetti had many other circumstantial links to Yara. He had frequently hung around her house. He'd parked his car behind the gym and was known to eat at the pizzeria at the end of her road. It didn't take a genius to see how the idea had taken hold in Massimo's mind and, either by premeditation or terrible chance, how things had unfolded. Those specific answers from the horse's mouth still elude Leticia, as Massimo, at the time of this podcast's release at least, maintains his innocence. Today... Yara's death has taken on almost a myth-like quality, a cautionary tale to young people, never publicly discussed by the family, just spoken of in sad whispers. Lives have been shattered forever. Giuseppe's widow now has to reconcile her memories of their marriage with what she now knows about his numerous affairs. Esther Azufi must lie awake at night questioning her son's guilt. The, by now notoriously private, Gambriasio family will never recover from the loss of their 13-year-old shining star, Yara. Missed and mourned by her hometown, 
the region of Bergamo, by her fellow gymnasts and her family. Her case remains one of the most incomprehensible and senseless in Italian criminal history. As for the investigation itself, any idea of criticism against Letizia was silenced when Massimo was sentenced to life imprisonment on the 1st of July 2016 at a court in Bergamo. Her investigative approach is lauded as one of the most detailed, determined and meticulous to ever have taken place. And a postage stamp, licked ten years previously, which provoked such a widespread DNA search, can be revered as one of the most unusual smoking guns to appear in this series. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas, and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review, and help spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story? Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime. Subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3.99 per month.